Well, it's good to see you guys again this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, it's no problem. We're going to be putting some of these passages uh, up on the screen so that you can follow along. Uh, this is the first time or first time in a little while. I'm actually wrapping up week three of a quick three-week series we've been doing, recapping our vision here at Dallas Bible Church. And so if you've missed out on the past couple of weeks, I've been referencing this article that God used a few years back to really help us shape how we think and talk about our vision here at the church. Uh, but the article was done by a bunch of LifeWay researchers that they were compiling data from about 200,000 churches all from all across the United States of America. And I was talking about the disproportionate rate of growth going on in the United States compared to the rate of uh, evangelism and discipleship taking place. So it's not so much that evangelism and discipleship doesn't really take place in the church, it's just that uh, the country's growing much quicker. And so talk about a number of different things, how from 1990 to 2005, uh, the United States is going to grow from about, about 92 million people. And meanwhile, tens of thousands of churches are going to be closing down their doors. So we talked about a number of alarming stats that go, that, that go along with that study. But the one that stuck out to me that, that we've kind of really grabbed hold of was this one. It talked about how of all the churches in the United States of America, there's only about 20% that are actually experiencing any kind of growth. And of those 20%, um, only about 1% of them are experiencing it largely through uh, reaching the unchurched, the dechurched with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means that the majority of growth that we're seeing uh, is really taking place largely through Christians that are just shif- shuffling from one place to the next. So it's not that growth isn't really happening, it's just that it seems like uh, we've forgotten what God has called us to be as a church. And so that's what we're going to be talking about these next, uh, really this is the last week for that, but in short we talk about it like this. We say that we want to be a church that's included in that 1%. Um, specifically, we say that we want to be a multiplying, mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace, uh, that brings joy to the city and glory unto God. And so one more time, I just want to hit on this. What does it look like for us to be a community of people that are marked by God's grace, a community of believers that are included in this 1% that we're talking about right here? So again, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to pick it up this morning, uh, starting in verse 10. Now, here at the end of Ephesians 6, um, this is actually going to be Paul's conclusion to his letter to Uh, the church in Ephesus, right? So the first few chapters of Ephesians have been a lot of theology, a lot of uh, celebration of what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to heal our broken relationship with him and then heal our broken relationship with one another on a horizontal level down here. The next three chapters, which are going to wrap up the end of Ephesians, are going to largely be applicational. And, uh, and so by the time we get to chapter 6, uh, he's going to be wrapping this entire letter up with this reminder that, uh, that we're actually in a war and that you better be prepared for the war that's happening around you every single day. And I was reading it again this past, uh, past few weeks and kind of refreshing myself going through the study. And I was reminded of the fact, of the, the, really the first time I played um, paintball with my family. I don't know if you guys, any of you guys play paintball lately? You get older and maybe that's more of a high school thing. Any of you guys play anytime lately? Anybody to describe themselves as kind of a, an addict and you're kind of the fanatic that, you know, you have the, you have the, the, the bombs and the, the, the paint grenades and stuff like that? Um, okay, there's some people that do that, but anyway. Um, <laughs> I guess, uh, it was probably early elementary school, right around Christmas time. Uh, my uh, crazy uncle Dave, he's the uncle that brings the, the great gifts at Christmas time and has a lot of fun. Well, he never gives gifts. He just gives experiences and stuff. And so it was like early elementary school. And so for Christmas, he decided the whole family, all of our friends, cousins, the whole deal, we're getting away and we're going to go play paintball and basically shoot each other up for Christmas, right? which is what probably a lot of us want to do um, around Christmas time. But 
Uh, anyway, he thought that was going to be the awesome gift, and honestly, it kind of was, but I had no idea what paintball was at that time. I had never played. It was early elementary school, and so we show up, and I show up at the battlefield, and I'm wearing literally like soccer shorts and a white t-shirt, right? As a little third grade kid, and like I'm the younger one of the group and everything, soccer shorts and a white t-shirt. I'm not kidding. My, my cousins come in in this van, and they walk out of the van, and they are dressed head to toe, full camo, Right? I mean, absolutely just full camo. They got the hats, the mask. I mean, they've got like automatic rifles as paintball guns, the, the grenades in their hands. I mean, they're going nuts on this whole thing. And I don't have to tell you, I got, got totally lit up that day. Like we went out and um, it's probably their dream come true. I think that was Uncle Dave's Christmas gift to them. We're like, hey, we're going to let you go to town on Aaron. And so we go, um, we go out there. I'll never forget. I'm out there and I'm trying to take the flag from the place I'm supposed to take the flag from and everything, and I think I've got a clear shot to it. I run in this field, and all of a sudden, like, all of my cousins just jump up out of nowhere, and they just unleash, right? And it's not just, like, one paintball. It's not like, like one shot, boom, you're done, and you're out. I mean, they just unleash. They're automatic rifles, and just, just totally just wipes me out. And I'll never forget, I come out of that day, and I was like, I was lit up. I mean, the whole body is just covered in whelps. I've got, I, I'm bleeding all over the place from crawling around in the woods wearing shorts and a white t-shirt. It just did not go very well. But bottom line, like, I had no idea what I was getting into that day. Like, I really thought that we were going, we were going to go play a game that day. But, like, my family was prepared for World War III, right? And, and, and the reason I say that is because it's exactly what Paul's going to be saying for, to us here in this message here in Ephesians. It's a warning that he's giving us right here. Church, don't be oblivious to the war that's going on around you every single day, right? That's what he's saying. Like, don't be naive to the spiritual battle that's taking place every single day. Here's what he's going to say in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, not just shorts and a t-shirt, right? Like put on the full camo and the mask and the whole thing so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, C.S. Lewis is going to say that most Christians, when we're, when we're thinking and talking about the demonic spiritual forces and things like Satan and things like that, C.S. Lewis is going to say that most Christians are going to fall into one of two extreme errors, right? So the first one is that a lot of us will believe in them, but we're going to, we're going to believe in the demonic and, and spiritual forces and things of that nature, but we're going to give Satan way too much power and authority in our lives. So it's kind of like I, I had a bad dream last night. Satan is trying to attack me. Right? He's trying to kill me. He's trying to, trying to overwhelm me. I hit traffic on 635, and he's just trying to slow me down to keep me from going where I want to go, right? Which, there might be some validity to, to what he's doing at 635, but um, I keep falling into the exact same sin patterns over and over and over again. It's always Satan's fault, and it's, it's never my own. It's always a blame-shifting thing kind of taking place. So that's one extreme, right? There's this way to believe uh, in an unhealthy way that gives him way too much power or authority in your life. The other extreme is that a lot of us live like he's not even real at all. Like the whole thing, like when we talk about spiritual forces and, and all these different things in the, in the text, these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, like, like the whole thing's just a myth. Like it's kind of this bad sci-fi movie or something like that. that and, and the only thing that's real is what you can see with your eyes and, and touch with your hands and things like that. By the way, church, like, like Satan could care less about whether or not you believe in him. You know why? Because he's not after your recognition. He's after your destruction. 
It's why he says in 2 Corinthians 11 that, that, that he masquerades as an angel of light, meaning he's not necessarily going to show up all the time like fangs and teeth and horns and, and levitating 10 feet above your, de- your bed trying to scare you to death in the middle of the night. Like he's going to masquerade as an angel of light. He's going to do whatever it takes to try to trick you and to try to deceive you so that you'll ultimately be destroyed. It's why Peter's going to say, be alert and sober in mind, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's how he works, right? He doesn't want you to know that he's actually there until it's way too late. I was reading um, a psychology bulletin this past week, a non-Christian take on what's happening uh, in our youth today. And it was saying this, um, it was saying a number of different things, and uh, actually I'm going to jump back to that one just a little bit. Um, that, but that's how he's working. Like, we, we, we can't be naive to the spiritual battle that's taking place every single day. Church, when you open up the news and you read in the news on CNN that a thousand different children are being taken advantage of by Catholic priests in Pennsylvania, like, I promise you there's something else going on in the world today. Like, when there's 92 million more people in the country and 10 million fewer people in the pews, like, I promise you there's something else that's going on in the world today. Like when 60% of our marriages are going to end in divorce, like I promise you there's something else that's going on in the world today. And when child pornography is a $4 billion industry and one of the fastest growing online businesses in the world, like I promise you that there's something else that's going on in the world today. And what Paul's going to say is don't be naive. Don't be naive to the spiritual forces that are going on and, and, and active around you every single day. You are in a war and there's a very real enemy who is trying to destroy your life. And so he picks it up here in uh, verse 13, and he's going to say, put on the full armor of God, right? Two different times he's going to say that. Why? So when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything that you can, you'll still be able to keep standing firm. And so this isn't necessarily a message about how to avoid the battle altogether. Like I promise you, Satan knows how to infiltrate whatever Christian bubble we try to create. Right? He, knows how to, he knows how to infiltrate the private schools and what's happening at home and, and the different things that we try to create to, to say, hey, hey, we don't want him to touch you. Like, that's not what this is about. This is about a message about how to continue to keep standing strong when it's time to get in a fight with the enemy. And so to that end, two different times in this text, he's going to say, put on the full armor of God. And what follows are going to be six pieces of armor that God has already given us access to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not necessarily that these are unique and different ideas altogether. Um, All we're talking about are different gospel applications that work together to strengthen your entire body when it's time to fight the enemy. So here's what he says starting in verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all these things, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the first thing that he's going to talk about is this belt of truth right here, right? Which is buckled around your waist, he says. Now, lucky for us, I was able to find an actual picture of the belt of truth, which Paul must have had in mind when he was writing this passage. Uh, But as you're going to notice, like we know this, like the belt is going to be the thing that's going to go around your waist and it's going to largely um, uphold everything else that's going on in, in what you're wearing. I told you this a little while ago. Caleb is obsessed with belts for some reason right now. He won't leave the house without wearing a belt. And like, he's like, he wants everybody to see it. He's like, this is the thing that's holding up my pants. I, I've got to wear my belt today. Like, he's just certain that that is what's taking place. And so kind of along those same lines, what he's saying here is when he's talking about the belt of truth, he's talking about letting Jesus, who John is going to say is the way, the truth, and the life, 
He's talking about letting Jesus be the core of your identity that holds everything else together. Like, that's what he's saying. Don't get your identity from your friends. Don't get your identity from an abusive spouse or an abusive parent or Hollywood or social media or even let yourself define who you actually are. Stand firm with the belt of truth and let your identity be defined by what God has said is true of you. So in Genesis chapter 1, uh, when it says that every man, woman, and child has been created in the image of God, then you better believe that inherently uh, every man, woman, and child has been given dignity and value before a holy God. Like, if you've been given the right to be called a child of God, as John's going to say, then you better believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're absolutely loved by him. If you're his workmanship and you've been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, then you better believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, like, your life has purpose before a holy and good God. Uh, You better believe, like, if he really knew you while you were in your mother's womb, he numbered the hairs upon your head, then you better believe there's nothing about you that's an accident. And if he's really made you to be an essential part of the body of Christ, then you better believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has made you to be a necessary part of this community of believers here, church. That is what you are. That is what's true of you in Jesus Christ. And I promise you, Satan wants to do everything that he possibly can to make sure you don't get that message. That's what I was thinking about with the psychology magazine this past week. The psychology bulletin was, uh, I I love reading these things, getting a a non-Christian take on what's happening around the world, but um, it was saying some very, very alarming things. It was talking about how 20% of our teenage girls and 15% of our teenage boys are are, um, engaging in cutting themselves or some sort of self-mutilation as a way of physically expressing what's emotionally happening inside. It was talking about how the suicide rate among millennials and Gen Z was twice the rate of any other generation. They were saying somewhere around 18%. That seems really high to me, but the point of the matter is it's twice the rate of any generation behind them. And they talked about how 33% of them have been diagnosed with clinical depression. Again, even if the stats are like off a little bit, can you just think about how many people that that impacts? 33% diagnosed with clinical depression. You want to know why they're talking about It's because this generation, more than any generation before them, is living under a bubble in this microscope. It's kind of this comparison trap world where they're always comparing themselves to this ideal, this perfect world, and they're never able to attain it. Social media, online presences, and things of that nature. They're shooting for perfection, and when they realize that they're not able to hit it, it is a crushing blow to who they are. They never really believe that they're ever actually good enough. Church, is that not how Satan comes after us every single day? No matter who you are, no matter what you bring to the table, no matter what's going on, like you're never, ever enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not skinny enough. You're not strong enough. You're not rich enough. You're not cool enough. You're not successful enough. You're not popular enough. You're not funny enough. You're not even godly enough. Whatever that thing may be, it's never going to be enough. I mean, tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to be subjected to about three to 5,000 different advertising messages in one given day. And they're all going to be doing the exact same thing, convincing you, putting all of their time, money, effort, and resources behind this message that whatever you have, you still need more because it's not enough. And then the next day you're going to open up your computer and you're going to have social media up for about nine hours a day between your computer and your cell phone and things of that nature. And, and, And you're going to be constantly comparing your own reality with the online reality of people who are using filters and Photoshop and only posting the highlights of their life, and you're going to be subtly finding your value in how well you measure up to them or in how many likes you get from strangers that you don't even know. Church, I'm telling you, like, like he's crushing us today in the area of our identity and who we really are. And and, and hear me this, it's, it's not just our young people, right? Like, it's not just them. Like, it's been crushing the olders and stuff for a really, really long time. 
I shared with you this, this quote from Madonna a, a number of times, but I keep coming back to it because I, I think it perfectly illustrates some of the tension that we face. But here's what she said, one of the most successful people by all worldly standards and stuff in our country today. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's what's always pushing, pushing me. Some days I'm able to push past one spell of it and discover that I'm actually a special human being. But then I quickly feel mediocre again and uninteresting unless I do something else. Even though I've become somebody and I've accomplished a lot, I still feel like I have to prove that I am somebody. My struggles never ended, and I guess it never will. Church Oprah says the exact same thing. Here's what she says. She goes, I discovered I really don't feel like I'm worth a darn, and I'm certainly not worthy of love unless I'm accomplishing something great. Church, how in the world does that happen? Two of the most successful people by worldly standards and stuff that we see in media today. Like, how in the world does that happen? Because the reality of the gospel is, no matter where you were in the middle of that place, while you were still a sinner, Christ still fixed his love upon you so much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and claim you and to bring you back into fellowship with him through his son, Jesus. Like, that is the reality of the gospel. But I'm telling you, there is a lion that is on the prowl, and he was seeking someone that he can devour. And if you're not wearing the belt of truth, and you're not letting him define who you really are, then Satan's going to have a field day with your life. And so Paul's going to say, first thing you do, you put on the belt of truth, and you walk in the belt of truth. Along the same lines, he's also going to say something similar with the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, it's a very, very similar idea, but specifically he's talking about that you and I have got to own uh, the righteousness which has been gifted to us in Jesus Christ. But, but not only that, from a positional perspective, we've also got to then walk in that righteousness which he's given us. This is probably one of my, my more favorite um, images in the whole armor of God here. What's the first thing you're going to no- notice about this breastplate here? Besides that it kind of looks like your pastor. Um, <laughs> right? Like incredible abs, right? Like those abs are insane. It looks like Batman's abs or something. Like you've got like, perfectly shaped pecs. I mean, that thing is solid right there, right? That is a solid piece of armor, which means that if I were to put it on, like no matter what's the, the, the jiggle that's taking place underneath... <laughs> Like, the only thing that you're going to see are perfect abs and perfect pecs, right? Check this out. Look, follow me here. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. In other words, what he's saying, like, like there's no such thing as real self-righteousness. It's a myth. <laughs> there's no way. You can try to be self-righteous. You can act self-righteously. There's no such thing as real self-righteousness. Righteousness, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. By the works of the law. You try We work really, really hard. You may be better than your neighbor. You may be better than your friend. You may be better than your family. But but there's no one who's going to be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Here it is, verse 22. Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In other words, it's a gift. Righteousness is gifted to you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. No matter where you came from, no matter what you look like, there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. Why? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the exact same boat before a holy God. And all are justified, meaning all are also declared righteous by that just judge who is God, because uh, freely by God's grace, through the redemption which came through Jesus Christ. In other words, church, if you are found in Jesus Christ, then the love handles of your sin have been replaced by the perfect abs of Christ's righteousness right? That's what he's saying. If you're found in Christ and the love handles of your sin, like they've been replaced by the perfect abs of his righteousness. It's why Paul's going to say, such were some of you. 
It's why he's going to always give this contrast between your past and who you now are in Christ. Such were some of you. You used to be defined by these different labels that hung over your head, but now that you're in Christ, you have been fully washed by the blood of the Lamb. You've been sanctified and set apart by God and called holy by him. You've been justified and you've been declared righteous, not because you are, but because that righteousness has then been gifted unto you. So it's not so much that you're no longer fat. It's just that in Christ, the love handles of your sin have now been replaced by the, by the perfect abs of Christ's righteousness. So to continue in this, in this image here, it, it, that's part of it. You've got to own the righteousness which has been given to you in Jesus Christ. But then from that place which has been gifted to you, you've got to then walk in that righteousness. Right? I, I, I've said this many, many times. Like Satan will attack you. Uh, he'll attack any part of your life that's not fully surrendered to the authority of Christ. Like that's the place where he's going to go after where you're most vulnerable. I'll never, I'll never forget this conversation I had with a guy who, um, he was relatively fresh out of prison after spending five years there on child pornography charges. He was a believer in Christ, and I was getting to know his story a long time ago, and um, I was asking him, I was like, how did this whole thing go down? Like, how did, how did, how do you get to this point? He goes, honestly, I never saw it coming. He goes, it started very, very simple. I was just simply addicted to porn like everyone else. Church, by the way, there's no simple addiction to porn. And he just described what took place. He's like, I was a teenager. I was doing this exact same thing that all my friends were doing and everybody else was, was doing. And he goes, I was just engaging. I was looking. I was doing all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, it started to get boring. And so my taste got a little bit darker. And I started engaging in that after a little while. And then that started to get boring. And then my taste got a little bit darker from there. And I was engaging in that, and then all of a sudden that started to get boring after a little while, and I just, my taste kept getting darker and darker and darker, and I just started spiraling out of control in my life, and I had no idea what was taking place. By the way, church, it's exactly what we see in Hebrews chapter 3 when he says, let us encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you are going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Church, that's how sin works. It's deceptive. It makes you think, hey, it's no big deal. It's just a small little thing. No one's going to be hurt. It's no big deal. Everyone else is doing it. It's deceptive. It compounds. It, it, it always lies, and it hardens your affections to the things of God to the point where you get to this place where you've got this new normal in your life, and you have no idea how you even got there. Church, you don't get to adultery without first going through lust, right? You don't, get, you don't become violent without first entertaining hate inside of your heart. You don't get to embezzlement and cheating without first entertaining greed, and you don't get to divorce without first entertaining bitterness, unresolved bitterness in your life for years. Like, that's, that's how the enemy works. He, he, he takes whatever that thing may be that's not fully surrendered to the authority of Jesus Christ, and he twists it, and he lies about it, and he makes you believe all these different things, and it just builds, and it builds, and it builds in your life till your heart has become so hardened to the things of God, you can't even see what's going on in your life. And so what Paul's going to say here is don't even give him an inch to attack. Don't even give him an inch of your life that's not fully surrendered to his authority in all things. Put on the breastplate of righteousness and then humbly walk in that righteousness which has been freely given unto you. He continues to talk about the shoes of the gospel of peace. That's what I'm going to call it in verse 15. He says, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It's a little obscure going on, but... uh, I think we can see what's, what's happening here. I've had this song stuck in my head all week. Um, I need you guys to sing it with me. These boots are made for walking. That's just what they'll do. One of these, you guys take it over, please. One of these days, these boots are going to walk all over you. Okay, you guys got to sing that with me. Um, 
because that was bad. I was just doing a little solo there. But these boots are made for, and that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are going to walk all over you. Yeah, Kat was really annoyed with me all week. I'm just kind of singing that to Caleb and stuff. But like, that's exactly what Paul's saying right here, right? Like, that's what shoes do. That's what boots are made to do. They're made for walking. They're made for moving forward. And it's exactly what Paul's saying right here. You want to defeat the enemy, church, then you've got to be willing to go and engage the enemy. Like, that's what shoes do. You, they move forward. They are always moving forward. It's a faith that takes action. You want to defeat the enemy. You've got to be willing to go and engage the enemy. You want to see peace, then you've got to be willing to go and share the gospel of peace. And you want to see healing, you've got to be able to go and teach people and show people the God who can actually bring healing. Church, that is what Christ came to do. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to set the captives free, and he came to give righteousness to the unrighteous. Problem is that faith only comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of God. That's why Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 10, he's going to say, how can anyone call on a God they've never believed in? And how can they believe in a God they've never heard about? And how can they hear about that God unless there's someone to tell them? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Church, that is the reason why we do all the different things that we do. A kids' beach club and going into schools and sharing the gospel and, and homeless outreach and refugee outreach and young life and circle one and forcing evangelism and mission trips and, and a community giveaway. Church, like I promise you, community giveaways isn't just about couches and furniture. It's about all who are, who are far away understanding that there's a God who sees them and loves them and can provide for them every single day. Uh, one of my favorite conversations from um, this past weekend's community giveaway uh, one of our volunteers was talking with a, a lady out in the parking lot, and she was just like, I don't understand why you guys do the things that you're doing. Like, why in the world would you guys give all this stuff away? It's worth a lot of money. Like, why would you go and do all these things? Why would these people give up a Saturday to come and, and to help us load our cars and take this stuff to our apartments and help us move in when we have nothing? And she's like, it's, it's simple. We, we love you. But you don't even know me. Yeah, but we love you. And there's a God in heaven who loves you and sees you and, and wants to provide for you every single day too. Church, it's why we do the things that we do. Like why in the world would we partner with 150 other churches all across DFW, across denominational boundaries and go out every single day for 50 days on a row to engage the community with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Like it's not because it's comfortable or easy, right? It's because of people like, like, like Robert and Braun and Michael and Stephen and the nearly 3,000 other people who needed to hear and understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that he's done for them. That's why we do it. It, it. It's about the Wandies of the world. I'll never forget meeting Wandy going out there in Vickery Meadow. We were behind a, a convenience store one day, and, and I went and approached him and started talking with him, and I quickly realized the guy was just blitzed out of his mind, right? And we're having this conversation. I'm going, Lord, is this, is this even a, like a fruitful conversation to have? Like, can he understand anything that we're talking about? And he was weeping, and he was broken, and all these different kinds of things, and he's professing faith in Jesus, and, and it seemed like it was pretty awesome and, and powerful. And I come back to my crew, and and I was like, I don't know what just happened back there. I don't know if that was real. I don't know what was taking place. And I saw him go back and get another hit of meth, and you could see what was taking place and just a broken shambles kind of a, a thing happening there. Uh, Gary O'Neill, one of our elders, got partnered up with him and started following up, giving him a phone call, trying to meet with him and things of that nature. Wasn't able to get a hold of him. Finally, a number of weeks later, uh, he calls and reaches out to Gary and says, hey, I'm actually in the hospital uh, the, some, something happened inside of him. He had been bedridden in the hospital for four weeks in a row. And he says, I've been praying that God would deliver me from my meth addiction forever, and I've never been able to do it, and now God has forced sobriety on me for four weeks in a row. We went and visited him in the hospital that day, and I'll never forget. I was like, do you even remember our conversation? He's like, vaguely. 
He goes, I, I, he goes, I remember, he, he goes, I remember being overwhelmed with God's love for me and overwhelmed with this desire to complete, to, to have, basically give my life to him. And this is sober Wandy sitting in the hospital that day, and all of a sudden God forced this thing upon him where all of a sudden he never would have been able to flee uh, by himself, but he's sober and he's sitting there saying, I want to give my life to the Lord. He calls his dad. His dad comes down from another city, picks him up, takes him, and moves him out of that environment to move into his home so that he can get his feet underneath him again. Church, that is how the enemy is defeated. That is how the enemy is defeated. It is people, it is believers who put on the shoes of the gospel of peace and are willing to go into places to bring that gospel of peace. It is men and women who are willing to go to the homeless shelter to go preach the gospel of peace to people who need to understand the gospel of peace. It's people that are willing to go to the refugees and their co-workers and their neighbors and their friends that are willing to take this faith that they say they believe in and they're willing to act on it and they're willing to go with the gospel of peace. And here's the crazy thing about it all, like, if, if you've ever done this before, but you're going to realize this is true, but like, as you begin to go with the gospel of peace, that same peace which you're sharing to other people has a way of washing you and working in you at the exact same time. Like, have you ever noticed like how filled you feel when you're actually out there sharing the gospel of peace and you're giving your life away and you're serving and you're acting on this faith that you so proclaim? And I mean, it's kind of like God wired it that way. For you to actually thrive requires you to give your life away. I mean, it's kind of like that's part of whole, God's whole design. Like, your thriving is directly connected to your ability to give your life away and to act on this faith that we say that we believe in. It's David and Bathsheba, right? You guys remember, like, what were the circumstances surrounding his massive sin? Like, what, what was it that led him into temptation? Everyone else was out on the battlefield that day. David was home, and he was bored, and he was alone. Everyone else was engaging the battle that was before him, and David had pulled himself out, and he was tired, and he was bored, and he was home alone. Church, some of us are being destroyed by the enemy because we are bored, and we are tired, and alone, and we refuse to engage the battle that is taking place every single day around us. And so Paul says, get your feet ready with the shoes of the gospel of peace. Put your faith into action and be willing to go into those places that need to understand the gospel of peace. He keeps going and he says, in, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which is really another way of saying just protect yourselves with what you know to be true by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, I hope you're seeing that these aren't necessarily new things that he's talking about here. He's saying the same thing over and over again, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, and even the helmet of salvation that he's going to talk about in the very next verse. It's a, it's, they're all protective elements to help guard your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength to be able to know what's true uh, for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even the sword of the Spirit, the very next verse, is the only true offensive weapon in your arsenal. What is it, he says? The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. It is your ability to accurately handle the truth of God's word when the enemy comes to attack. Church, are you equipped to enter the battle that's taking place every single day? Are you equipped with the understanding of God's truth to equip the battle that's taking place every single day? All of these different things, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of the faith, the helmet of salvation, even the sword of the Spirit, like they're all different applications of the life-changing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here it is, like they work together, right? They're not all different, but they're working together. Why? So that you can extinguish all the flaming arrows and lies of the evil one. Church, that's what he does. It's how he works. He's a liar. He, he comes and he attacks you when you're vulnerable and, and he tries to convince you that whatever you're doing, it's, it's no big deal. Like everyone else is doing it. No one's going to get hurt, right? Like it's just small. Like you're going to be able to get away with it. 
And then when, when, when we feel a little bit of guilt, he's going to come alongside and he's going to try to kill you with shame and try to convince you that, no, 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 now you're damaged goods. Right? Like, like there's no coming back from this thing, that you're never going to be able to make a difference, that your marriage is always going to be bad, or that you're always going to be alone, or that you're never going to be a good parent, or, or that you're always going to be sick, or that you're never going to be enough. And what he's saying is in the middle of that place, church, Christ has provided everything that you need, because the victory has already been won. The victory has already been won, and so you can actually stand firm, and you can stand firm with the shield of faith, and you can fight with the sword of the Spirit, knowing I can now do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I can fight back and I can say, because, because God is my helper, he's never going to leave me nor forsake me. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And the Lord is going to fight for me, so all I've got to do is resist the devil and he's going to flee from me. James is going to say, you don't have to wander aimlessly because the Lord generously gives wisdom to all who are willing to ask. John's going to say, you don't have to wallow in shame every single day because when I confess my sin, then I know that he's faithful and just and will absolutely forgive my sin and purify me from all unrighteousness. He's also going to say, if the Son has set me free, then I am free indeed. That's the truth of what the Word of God says. Paul's going to say, I used to be lost and dead of my sins, uh, but now that I'm in Jesus Christ, I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, right? I've been sanctified and I've been called holy. I've been justified and I've been declared righteous. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Philippians is going to say, you don't have to worry about your future, because I know that my God will meet all of my needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God has a plan for my life, and it's a plan to prosper me, not to harm me. His eye is on the sparrow in church. If his eye is on the sparrow, then I promise you, his eye is also on you. My God is working all things together for good because I love him and have been called according to his purpose. And Revelation is going to remind us that, that I don't need to be in despair about the future because the victory has certainly been won. Church, Christ is coming back again. And when he does, there's going to be no more crying, no more sin, no more, no, more, no more crying, death, or pain. Because the old things will have passed away and behold, new things will have come. Church, that is how you fight the enemy. When the enemy comes and he's bringing his lies, you fight back with truth. When he goes after your identity, you, you put on the belt of truth and remind him of what's true about who you are. When he tries to tempt you, you put on the breastplate of righteousness. And when he tries to make you doubt the future, you stab him to death with the sword of the Holy Spirit. Church, that is how you fight the enemy. Are you prepared to defeat the enemy? Do we know God's word at all in a way that's going to help us in that time of battle? Church, the reality is that the victory's already been won. Do you know where to go when those... Arrows are flaming at your soul. And you're trying to keep your head up and breathe. Bart Ehrman is a professor of New Testament at a university in North Carolina. He's one of the leading skeptics in the world and widely credited for leading thousands of college freshmen away from the faith to walk away from the relationship with the Lord. But he's notorious for what he does on the first day of class. First day of class, he comes in, and it's a New Testament class. And so you can imagine so many students are coming in kind of thinking, oh, hey, we're going to learn about the Bible a little bit. And he comes in and he holds up his Bible and he says, how many of you believe that this is the authoritative word of God in your life? And the majority of the class raises their hand because that's what they've been told to believe. And he goes, how many of you guys have read this thing from cover to cover? You can imagine like everybody puts their hands down. There's like one or two students at that time and they've got their, they've got their hand down and he just looks at them and he says, you believe that this book was written by the almighty God of all creation and that he's actually given you a book that you can know him by and none of you have even read it? Because you've proved my point. You don't really believe that this is God's word. You're just going along with everything that you've been told. So I'm just going to spend the rest of this semester convincing your head of what your heart already believes. Church, I'm telling you, like, you're, you're in a war. <laughs> you're in a war. 
And you may not be able to see it, but I promise you he's there. And there's a very real enemy, and he's prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. He knows your tics. He knows your hangups. He knows where you're vulnerable. He knows where to attack. Church, do you treat the word of God like it is the life-saving truth that you believe that it is? 1864, there's a physician named Ignaz Semmelweis. I hope I pronounced that right. He stumbled upon a theory that we now call the germ theory. Um, back in those days, everybody thought that disease would just spontaneously combust inside of human bodies. They just took place inside something is broken inside of you, and so disease comes about. And so as a result, no one would wash their hands when they did surgeries. Uh, so doctors would go between patients, and they would treat someone that's got an infectious disease or a, a dead corpse or something like that, and they'd immediately move from there to delivering babies, right? So you can imagine that um, that might have had something to do with the enormous death rates that were taking place way back then. So Semmelweis is looking around at this whole thing, and he's beginning to think, well, maybe disease isn't something that just kind of spontaneously happens inside of you. Maybe it's actually transferred from person to person through these invisible particles that we can't even see with our own eyes. Maybe it's just something that kind of moves from person to person. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to us, right? But like back in the day, like it was just not thought about at that time. So he begins to test his theory by having his interns start washing their hands with a little bit of chlorine and water uh, before they delivered their babies. And um, what he found, of course, was that the infant mortality rate had just dramatically decreased. And so he's pretty pumped about this, and he's trying to teach all of his colleagues and the whole medical community that, hey, this is a major thing that's going on. Problem is that none of them would believe his message. He had a number of things working against him. He was a Hungarian Jew that was working in Vienna, Austria, so that was a problem in and of itself. Didn't have a whole lot of credibility there. Uh, but more than that, his colleagues could not believe uh, that, that tiny invisible particles from their own hands were the cause of so much destruction. They couldn't believe that. They're like, how in the world? Like, there's nothing on my hands. There's, there's nothing that's real going on here. They, they could not believe that tiny invisible particles on their hands were the cause of so much destruction. And so one day, uh, no one would believe him. Not even his own wife would believe his own theories, and he just lost it. It was a few years into his discovery. No one was, was giving him any uh, credibility, and, and no one would listen to what he was saying. And he lost it at this, um, at this famous conference. He walks up to the stage, and he grabs the podium, and he begins to scream at all of his doctors, For the love of God, just wash your hands. I'm not kidding. He walks up and he just screams. He goes, for the love of God, just wash your hands. I'm telling you, that's all you've got to do. People are dying needlessly. Babies are dying. Mothers are dying. All you've got to do is just wash your hands. There are these things that are out there and they transfer. For the love of God, just wash your hands. That's exactly what Paul's saying to us here at church. For the love of all that's holy, would you simply wash your hands? in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of what he's done for you. Church, the victory's already been won. It's been taken care of. The cure is out there. It's all been taken care of. Would you simply wash your hands in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Church, that's how the 1% fight. Like they're not naive to the battle that's going on every single day around them. They're not making too much. They're not making too little. They know that there's a battle going on. They know that there's a very real enemy out there and that he masquerades around with, as an angel of light or that he's a lion who's prowling around trying to devour someone there. They, they know what's going on, but they also know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they, they, they know that the victory has already been won. And so when Satan comes to attack, they're able to keep standing strong because they know how to put on the full armor of God and they know how to fight. I'm going to invite you to pray with me.